everyone. Welcome back to Murder at Land Between the Lakes. During our trip to Dover, people familiar with the case told us someone associated with the case had a history of violent tendencies in daily social interactions and abusive behavior towards women. If you are aware of anyone associated with this case that exhibited behavior of this nature, you can let us know and you can let us know anonymously. Cases such as this, especially cold cases, are often solved when someone reveals pertinent information that they have held and sometimes have held for years. If you or someone you love is a victim of abuse, please seek help immediately. Physical, verbal, and mental abuse can all lead to extreme violence and even death. Get help today and call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Thank you. So we have a very special treat for everyone today. We have Christian Barth um, interviewed today, the author of The Garden State Parkway Murders, A Cold Case Mystery, who has a lot of insightful information to share about his experience in writing this book and about serial killers. So sit back and listen and enjoy. Thanks for joining us today. And today we have a special guest. We have Christian Barth author of The Garden State Parkway Murders, and also the author of The Origins of Infamy. Christian is a lawyer by day. He's a writer, photographer, and a cold case enthusiast. So thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me, Amelia. I greatly appreciate it. So if you don't mind today, I'd love to pick your brain a little bit about serial killers and a little bit about what you've learned about the minds of serial killers. Well, when, when you ask that question, what the first thing that comes to my mind is you sort of need to bifurcate serial killers into two different categories. Um, it, when, you're, when you're thinking about who committed the crime, you sort of have two types. You have serial murderers, and then you have serial sexual murderers. Now, a large portion, I'm going to say about 75 to 80 percent of murder serial killers are serial sexual killers okay notwithstanding again i'm no expert this is just what my studies have revealed um for example even though some of the more prolific serial killers um that have garnered a lot of attention weren't necessarily serial sexual killers like son of sam um I'm thinking of the John Lee Malvo. He's the gentleman about 20 years ago who with his son was mm -hmm. shooting people along the uh, Beltway in Washington. Yeah, the okay. Killings. Mm -hmm. So um, you have to differentiate but the, between those two. You know, the def the very definition of a serial killer is a person who kills two or more people with a long cooling off period in between as opposed to a mass murderer, which is a person who kills a number of people in um, you know, one um, singular time event. So does that answer your question? Right. Like a, a mass shooting is more like a, like the Vegas shooting or a school shooting. Something. Precisely. Precisely. Right. right. So let's start back for a second and talk more about your books and like people you've studied, for instance, like Ted Bundy. 
Um, when you've studied somebody like the mind of someone like Ted Bundy, um, let's talk about um, like let's talk about maybe a target, for instance. Like, what goes through the mind of a serial killer of somebody like Ted Bundy? Well, I mean, the, the when you're talking about what goes through the mind, you're, you're getting into the question of motivation. And I remember that the, 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 we discussed this back in law school, not in the context of serial killers, but in the context of how to prove someone guilty. Motive is a very, very difficult thing to prove because you're trying to get into you know, the brain patterns of, of a person. So it's it's very challenging to do, but you, the best way to do it, and this is something that the FBI is sort of veered toward as far as their studies of serial killers is to rather than look at the serial killer themselves, look at the crime scene and the evidence that's there at the crime scene. So, you know, they typically have, a, a, again, a certain pattern of crime with Bundy, you know, his whole MO was the ruse of, of the fake cast and carrying the books and trying to get, you know, taking advantage of vulnerable people, vulnerable people. And that's what serial killers will do. They're not going to, the last thing a serial killer wants to do, and this is something I learned for talking to Dr. Holmes down at Central Florida University in preparation or while interviewing for my book in the Garden State Park where he murders, the last thing they want to do is get caught. Mm -hmm. So that sort of threw my whole theory into flummox, at least partly, because in my book, you know, the girls, uh, Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry were pulled over to the side of the road. No one knows how, but when they did, um, there were three boys who were parked in a car sleeping off a night of partying a hundred yards behind them. So the serial killer I spoke with said, well, there's no way that could be a serial killer because that's the last thing they're going to do is get caught. So, um, I know you and I had discussed earlier that there may be a serial killer involved in your case down in Tennessee. Um, but again, you just sort of have to look at all the circumstances um, in order to reach that determination. And that's the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, is there a pattern? And obviously, was there any was there anyone else around in the area? Because that would sort of, you know, according to academic theory, negate the possible existence of a serial killer. Mm hmm. And this is something I was thinking about as well. What do you think, is, is there a difference between a psychopath and a serial killer? Is there a difference or no? Mm, yeah, well, psychopath is more of a, uh, a term, a psycholo a term to describe a person's psychology. I, right. I can't give you the, uh, the definition between that. And you know, there is a difference, obviously, between a psychopath and a sociopath. Mm -hmm. um, there's a difference between a person who is psychotic and psychopathic. Now, a psychotic person isn't necessarily psychopathic. They may be under a certain, you know, at a particular episode. For example, in my case, these girls were killed at six, about 6.30 in the morning. Um, and I've always surmised that given that there were a lot of bars nearby, that were some of which were open all night, that the person who did that was under the influence of a psychotic episode. Mm -hmm. um, so it's another thing you might want to look at in your case is at what time did this occur? It's very, very important. Okay. What time did it occur during the day? You know, did it, a person doesn't wake up at six in the morning and say, I'm going to go kill two people. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, some, there, there are other environmental factors that can contribute to that. My hope I didn't go on too far of a tangent as far as, um, you know, the difference between psych psychopath and, and all those things, but those are just 
again, several of the elements you need to consider. Right. I, I think um, one of the things I'd like to think about, I mean, not all psychopaths are serial killers, but do you think all serial killers are psychopaths? Oh, we go to the logic, the syllogism. Um, right. <laughs> I would I would think so. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Right. How can so they not, how can they not be? Exactly. Not, you know. Yeah. How could a serial killer be sane? Right. Right. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting, and and like you could also make the argument that all serial killers are sociopaths. Not all sociopaths are serial killers, but all serial killers would have to be by default sociopaths. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sociopaths are an interesting breed of people. You need it, it's become very popular now the the term, but I typically tell people this story. You know, well, my say is this about sociopaths. You know, their their number one their 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 trait is they don't have any compassion. Mm-hmm. They don't have the feeling that you and right. I have. They don't have the, the they they don't debate. You know, how is this? How will this impact a person if I kill them? They just go ahead and do that because it's all focused on them. When I was in um, first job out of college, I was an insurance adjuster. And there was a guy in our office, his name was Paul Serio, who seemed otherwise normal, except he had these uh, medieval jousting Renaissance fair rings on his fingers. Mm-hmm. I thought it was odd, more, more eccentric than anything else, made him sort of quirky. But every day he'd come by my desk, say, how you doing, Chris? Nice guy, never you know, domineering or oppressive or strange in any way. Long story short, um, Two years later, after I left the firm, someone called me up at I work with a friend of mine and said, did you hear what happened? I'm like, no. And he said, Paul Serio showed up on America's Most Wanted. Um, so a guy who was at my desk had already, by the time I met him, killed a woman, strangling her with a telephone cord and stabbed her in the chest. And he was actually a hitman. Um who had just, because it was pre-internet days, had made his way around the country um, doing these things. But I can tell you in retrospect, I never saw him. So when people say never saw that, that part of him, mm-hmm. so people say, Oh, we knew all along. We knew all along. You, you, the definition of a sociopath is you wouldn't be able to tell them apart from another person right then. It's not till after the fact that you can look in retrospect and say who they are. And that's what, right. that's what makes these people so hard to catch is because they're so hard to identify to begin with. And you're talking about your case down in Tennessee was in 1980, I believe it happened. You know, there just, there just weren't the tracking mechanisms that there are today. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't have cell phones. There aren't cameras everywhere and cameras are everywhere. I visited a friend of mine in rural North Carolina like two years ago and I was taking some photographs of rural cabins and, and barns and, some of these barns had signs on them that had video camera in use. I'm in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, cameras are everywhere, but they weren't back then. Right. So. Yeah, absolutely. So in saying, you know, all of that, would you consider most serial killers smart? I mean, for most part, you know, most of the time we talk about serial killers, we find out for the most part they're genius. I mean, they take all measures not to get caught. I don't think they're geniuses. I mean, Bundy had an IQ of... 124, which is somewhere the you know the intelligent range, not not overly. Okay. No, I don't think their their IQ has anything to do with it. There, there's something in their minds, and this is why they're always uh, always the subject of fascination. There, there's something in their minds 
that makes them act a particular way. Um, you know, they're, they're not all subject to abuse as kids. And that's the, one of the major things I found that, that shocked me and continue to shock me about Bundy's childhood. Um, the seminal book was called The Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule. Um, was came out in 1980. A later edition of that indicated that um, Bundy was abused as a kid and or was um, or saw exposed to violence at the hands of his grandfather, Samuel Cal, who allegedly swung cats by the tail and was an alcoholic. So I did digging, which wasn't too difficult, interviewed at length Bundy's aunt, as well as another relative out in Seattle, and found that none of this was true. But yet the media and um, you know the people who produce these documentaries don't seem to want to hear an, an opposing, not necessarily an opposing view, but an alternate theory. Um, so getting, again, I know I, I'm digressing a bit, but no, they're not, they're not all geniuses. They, they can be caught, but the circumstances today significantly curtail their ability to act without being apprehended as opposed to the 70s and 80s because of the cameras and, and the cell phones and, and, and technology. Right. Yeah. When you first started, wh when did you first start researching Bundy? Oh, years ago. I first got interested in my case in about 1993 when I read um, of his interest, not of his interest, but the fact that he had made two confessions uh, not complete confessions, more impliedly confessed to the Garden State Parkway murders, um, first in 1986 and then 1989. Um, and what they, he did was he said he was speaking to third person. They said he was at the beach and he met these girls and it wound up picking up and it terrified him because it was the first time that he did it, but he never outright admitted it. They're never going to outright admit that they killed someone. The speaking the third person allows these guys to sort of they think they're smarter than everyone else. And they think, well, if I talk in the third person, this person is not going to be able to, to see through this. And that's what, so as smart as they think they are, they have enormous egos. They're really not overly bright as they think they are. They just happen to be very, very clever. Uh, I was listening to a podcast about Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. You know, he wound up getting caught because he asked, I guess, a police officer via an email or something, said, um, if, if a person leaves, um, you know, makes an email or does something, is that, is that going traceable in a transmission or something? And obviously the detective said, no, it's not. So he went, it was so stupid what he did in retrospect, but that's how he went up getting caught, uh -huh. that he screwed up. Everyone, they all screw up eventually, just like Bundy did. You know, Bundy really wouldn't have been probably he would have been caught eventually, but he got caught because he was in at Lake Sammamish in Washington in the crowded day doing his whole, um, you know, can you help me put my uh, bike on my car to every girl he saw? And he said, my name is Ted. Mm -hmm. And that's and they saw you know, it was the Ted. That's what did it. If he had used a false name, he may likely not have been caught. But yeah. that's ultimately every they're all going to make a mistake at some point. Yeah, I think, do you think maybe ego is getting in the way of most of these guys? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's probably their, their, their number one fallacy is their egos. They're their own worst enemy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I think, do you think a lot of time they want to, I think they want to get caught at some point. They want to be, I think they're proud of their work. Do you feel that way? Well, they're, they're definitely proud of the work. I don't know that they, they, they want to get caught. I guess you could say at, at some point they want to get detected because maybe they're immersed in this, this misery. And a lot of them, them say that Bundy used to say that when he went to New York city in the spring of 69, and that's how he was originally associated with the New Jersey uh, Garden State Park Reimers because he was taking a semester at Temple and living with his aunt in the suburbs. And he said he would go to New York City um, and view the pornography with a lot of these guys. Pornography is their initial influence. Um, and he, he formed, I forget, the, yeah, the entity, that's what he called it within himself. The entity started to boil over to the to the point where he couldn't control it any longer. And as, as you're aware, before uh, Mayor Jul- then Mayor Giuliani um, fixed up Times Square, um, it was a terrible place. They had all the theaters and really appealed to, to persons like Bundy. There were a lot of grinder and slasher films where women were openly objectified. There was this sort of blurred line between violence and sexuality. And actually the BTK killer did say that as well, that he used to read his father's true detective magazines. And I don't know if you've seen any of those back in the sixties and seventies, that's sort of what, what pulp fiction was. Mm -hmm. These women would be objectified um, in within the context of, of true stories. And there'd be pictures of them being bound and gagged and, and so forth. Um, But they, they tend to serial killers also tend to at least sexual serial killers tend to, sexualize the killing itself and it serves as a substitute not to get too graphic but for the ejaculation a lot of them that's how they get aroused not through conventional forms of of um you know sexual practice between two people but they'll get close with an object a knife or strangulation and watching the person suffer is how they you know essentially um get their stimulation they'll also most of them, again, this being serial sexual killers, will leave behind a signature. And this goes back to the ego we were discussing earlier. They want everyone to know that um, you know they were the ones that did it. And that could manifest itself in a certain way. They bound a person or stabbed them or strangled them or hung them or, or did something along those lines. The other thing, um, getting back to what we mentioned earlier about what struck me was so many of them, a large number of them are local. Like 78% of them will kill within the state they live or they're from a bordering state. So they are generally localized, notwithstanding, you know, Ted Bundy and, and others like him. You hear these transient serial killers. They tend not to be transit. They tend to be localized and, and, and local people. So that's something, you know, you also might want to consider is right. just try to try to stick, stick local. Mm-hmm. And in your experience, do they um, move often or no? Uh, they move. Um, you know, people move, and you know, there's sometimes years upon years will go between a serial killer killing, and that was the case with actually with Dennis Rader as well. They'll take years off for no explanation whatsoever. But although there are transient serial killers, you know, truckers sometimes uh, they the I five there was a. a trucker out there in the Pacific Northwest. I think that's still unsolved as well. Number of murders out there. Uh-huh. So they can be transient, but for the most part, and I said they, they are local and not only that, but you know, there are people take 
take great pains to differentiate them and say, well, they're not all white and they're not all male and they're not all in their thirties. And then look at, look at, um, Wayne Williams, right down Mm -hmm. the Atlanta child murder. But for the most part, Amelia, they are white. They are in their twenties and thirties. They are single. They are local. So there are these statistics that that they, they do fit a certain profile. Right. Yeah. And you also have Stuart Little. Which Um, one with Stuart Little? um, He was the one who recently just came out. Um, oh, Mr. Little. Oh, the guy from Los Angeles. Right. Yeah, he was captured in Kentucky. Um, yeah. The biggest question I just wanted to ask you as well um, that you were just touching on a little bit. Do you find that there are triggers that um, maybe when they when they don't kill for years um, in between, do you find that there's triggers? I don't know that there's any, any triggers. Um, not that I've heard of. They, they just get it in their mind that they're going to murder someone. I think it's it's a game for them. Um, and once they get into the zone, once they make that determination, is that uh-huh. oftentimes, um, you know, they, that they can't stop. So that's the, the question I had for my case. You know, again, this why would this person if he was a serial killer and uh-huh. these girls, I don't know if you've heard of what's a holdback. You've talked to the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation and so forth. The holdback is what the police don't tell you. And if you search long enough, you'll, and the case is old enough, you'll find out what the holdback was. They, they keep certain evidence from the press because they're trying to discourage people to come in and give false confessions, et cetera. But the holdback in the case of uh, Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry was that they were, one of them was bound to a tree, either bound to a tree with her bra or had a bra tied into her hair. Um, and Again, these are things that are very, very indicative of serial killers to the extent that they're signatures. Uh-huh. So you, if you're looking at your own case, you might want to, you know, see if there's something, something like that. There's also, and this is just as an aside, I'm sure you've already done this. There's a terrific resource out there. I use it extensively called newspapers.com. I don't want to give anyone, allow them to do that, talk about, you know, another site, what have you, but... It's a pay site that has all these newspaper articles archived from way back when. It's not the Google archive. And um, you can find, you can search your crimes down in that particular area and sort of see. There were a lot of those, many more of those back then in the era, era, excuse me, that you and I are talking about than you'd really Mm -hmm. think. And if you just Google the certain terms, you know, um, again, these these sexual crimes tend to fit a particular pattern. These are knives, binding, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know that in your case, because the girls were shot at close range, you'd have a serial killer. But again, it just I just don't know enough about the specifics of it. You know a lot more than I do um, in order to come to that conclusion. Right. And we... When you said that, um, I'm sorry, I'm going back for a second. When you talk about maybe there's not triggers, but you think there's it's just more so compulsion, right? Compulsion, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. I think, again, it goes back to, to the extent that a large majority of them are serial sexual murders. It right. almost becomes axiomatic. Um, mm-hmm. The term serial killers, are sex, with the exception, again, of, of the guys that we discussed earlier. You know, there are mm-hmm. certain triggers. They'll see a woman and it'll it'll trigger in their mind, you know, I need to have this person. But for their own reasons, you know, what what triggers them 
is different from what that triggers a typical human being. You know, they don't see a person, they're attracted to them. They want to meet the person and go about it in more traditional ways. They, for whatever reasons, you know, they, again, get their sexual gratification from control. And that's the thing. It's the complete control over a person when they have that person within see them and they know they're going to die. That's, that's the ultimate form of control for them is seeing that's how they get, that's how they get their sexual gratification, not through the conventional forms. Right. And, and, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but Bundy did, did fall in love though, right? Allegedly. I, you know, I've seen the shows on him. I was never, I never reached the conclusion. There was a recent show. These things are are typically synthesized, sensationalized Mm -hmm. reenactments of him. And again, I reached that conclusion, Amelia, not cynically, but because the fact that I found out uh, so much that was different in my own research rather than, um, um, you know, rather than what is portrayed on on TV. But I forgot your question. Can you repeat that to me? <laughs> I said, um, did do you think that Bundy did fall in love? Like, what I don't know. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me. Right. When I saw this episode, there, this recent girlfriend of of his and they, mm-hmm. she, the daughter, I was never under the impression that he was in love with her. I just thought it was he there. That was something he was just he was sort of stringing her along till something something better came along. Right. I never felt that he loved her at all. I just, nothing, nothing about that suggested. I think she was there in the right place in the right time. Uh-huh. And maybe that created a front for him. Yeah. And it certainly did when it was, you know, when he became a person of interest, he could always say, well, here's my alibi. I was with, um, you know, Elizabeth that night and with her daughter. So a person who has a girlfriend with a daughter um, uh-huh. and is a political up and comer in Washington. He couldn't be a serial killer. So that, I think that was all a front for him. I never right. felt that he loved the person he really loved. At least if you want to believe his confessions was another woman that went to Stanford university, um, that sort of blew him off this, I think her last, I forget her last name, but Diane, I believe it was. Um, in fact, he had referenced Diane, um, in like some sort of vision when he was talking to Dr. Dorothy Lewis about the Garden State Parkway murders, um, you know, she asked him, and this I found fascinating as well, um, his penultimate interview before he talked to James Dobson, a religious figure, before he died, Dark, doc, Dr. Lewis, excuse me, said, you know, you can talk about anything you want to, Ted, right now. Mm-hmm. And he brought up Ocean City, New Jersey for nothing. It is the Ocean City, and he he took pains to differentiate that. Um, you know, I may have said before I killed someone. I just wanted to say I didn't kill a person. I actually tried to abduct her um, at Ocean City in the boardwalk area, and I always thought that was strange. I talked to another serial killer expert who said it's very interesting that these, and you'd have to look up the exact definition, but serial killers tend to confabulate. They'll mix up truth and lies. Um, in an attempt to sort of try to trick the interrogator into discerning what's truth and what's not. They'll wrap truth around lies and lies around truth. And that's another element sort of of psychological control and and ego gratification. Do you believe like there's possibly another that they ever have a second person like for instance he did t- did talk to um that 
I guess it was the doctor. It wasn't. It wasn't a nun, was it? Was no, it was a nun? doctor. No, it was a doctor. It was doctor doctor Dorothy Lewis. And the irony is, Doctor Lewis was the person who, in 1987, had allegedly interviewed Ted's aunts, and that's where, in the later edition of okay. Anne Rule's books, the now accepted as truth theory of him being exposed to violence at a young age okay. through Samuel Cal came to be. Okay. So I always thought that was quite ironic that he'd mentioned Ocean City to her yet at the same time she had written that stuff. And you know, I talked to a, a documentarian. She reached out to me about six or seven months ago and her work is going to be premiered at a festival sometime this spring and it was about sort of delving into the mind of, of the psychology of these people. And she said, Oh, I understand that you've studied Bundy extensively, yada, yada. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk to you, but I have to disclose at the outset that my research is indicating that there's an alternate theory as to Bundy's, you know, this having been exposed to violence at a young age. And that was the end of our conversation. <laughs> she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's sometimes they, people, I guess, just don't want to hear an alternate viewpoint. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was fascinating. They let him kind of have so much access to her. Yeah. Well, they, you know, they, he's, I, I, I gather that she was the one he chose to speak with uh -huh. um, for whatever reasons you know, that she was the maternal presence, I guess that he needed. Not that, and that was another thing. I mean, he came from a very loving family. Another thing that's tried to be is, you know, they, they try to categorize these guys being all like John. What's the guy's name? Who? Lucas. Henry Lee Lucas. Yes. I was Maybe just about to bring that up. Right. Savage backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, but that wasn't the case here. It's almost as if because they can't find, they can't pinhole or, uh, or pinpoint, I'm sorry, what caused these psychological disturbances that, that prompted mm -hmm. Ted to go out and kill that they have to have, they have to have some reason. So they point to his grandfather, Samuel Cal, number one, and number two, the fact that he learned that his mother, you know, he first was told that his mother was his sister. And then when he learned that his mother was his mother, he was all traumatized. And he even took great pains to say that, you know, that never bothered him overly. Mm -hmm. um, to the extent that that just enraged him, it did, but you know, not, not to the extent that everyone says, and, and Sam Cowell, I also, Sam Cowell, I also learned was not an alcoholic. In fact, I heard he never took a drink in his life. Um, he was a teetotaler, a churchgoer, taught at Sunday school and all these things. So you think to yourself, it, it makes you look at all these, these series that come out about these people and say to yourself, right. you know, what of this is truth? And, and I apologize for the dog. Part. Oh, no. That's okay. Don't worry. <laughs> so. Yeah, um, I was I was just about to bring up Henry Lee Lucas as well, because he had, you know, they, they start to baby these guys a little bit just to see what they can uh, hold their hand through everything, just, I guess, to see what they can get from them, I guess. Yeah, well, with him, that was that was a very well done series because you uh -huh. could see as it went along, he liked the ice cream cones, he liked the attention. The milkshakes. You know, these people don't, for the most part, don't go to murder uh, women. Um, in systemic faction because they're, they're well-adjusted people. Right. They are lonely and isolated. And um, so, it, you know, the, for the first time in, in a lot of these people's lives, they're getting this attention. They feel like they're movie stars. 
And that's when they kill people in the localized areas and they get, they see the press attention. That's, they feed off of that because it's the first mm-hmm. time they've, they've ever had it. So mm-hmm. the narcissism component really factors in as well. Yeah. No, uh, yeah. Narcissism is, that's probably a key factor when we talk about all these guys. If you, what is probably the most surprising thing you learned um, through all your research? Um, the fact, and we probably already touched upon this, the fact that so much of what has been accepted as the truth about Bundy isn't in fact the truth. And that oh, sort of yeah. gets me to the thing of, well, about, um, you know, the, all these other serial killers, there were, you'd think there's a lot more left to know, um, because of that. And the other thing that struck me was, um, and I was actually the first to report this in my book is that Bundy in 69 lived about four miles from Gerald Stano. Gerald Stano murdered 30 some women in Florida on death row, but he's from Philadelphia as well. I also found out that the third person of interest in this case, it was actually the first guy that they interviewed was a guy named Mark Thomas, who would go on to lead a life of notoriety apart from this case, but the he was a person of interest when he was a teenager and Mark lived one mile from Gerald Stano. And according to Pennsylvania authorities knew the two knew one another and Gerald, the serial killers, younger brother was actually in ocean city with Mark at the time that this happened. So these are things that press never let out um, that I found. But the, it, the second thing I would have to say is the amazing coincidences. For example, uh, a guy who was from down your neck of the woods originally is Ronnie Walden. Uh, he was actually from Georgia, not, not Tennessee, but he was a prime suspect as well. And when the police in New Jersey came up to interview him, he was being held on auto theft charges in Colorado. Now, how weird is this? He was tried to hang himself in a jail cell before they came. And it was the very same jail cell that Ted Bundy escaped from. Um, in 1977 through the ceiling fixture before going down to Florida state and murdering those people. I just, the, the fact there's this tiny jail cell housed two people who were prime suspects in the murder of two young women. It just struck me as, as, as beyond, beyond comprehension. That's crazy. So yeah, that is right. So back to one thing you just said. So Bundy went out through the ceiling, not out the window. That was the sec. The first time he went out through the window, he jumped out the window during a break in the trial. He was such a smooth right. manipulator. He kind of said, "Oh, I'm just going to look up some cases." And the jailer wasn't looking. He jumped yeah. and ran. Then he got caught in the mountains a few days earlier. The second time he did it, he was in again the Garfield County Jail. I'm sorry, there was the uh, Glenwood Springs, Colorado Jail in Garfield County. The first jail that he escaped from was in Pitkin County in Aspen. But on his second time. Um, he uh, when they when they put him in there he he jumped out it was a snowstorm he stole a car I think he hopped the train to Atlanta I may have the the, uh, the logistics incorrect but he went to Ann Arbor Michigan and then he went to Florida and and that's what happened so there were two separate instances but he he lost like forty pounds and was able to take out the light fixture and and shimmy his way through there sort of like an acrobat. Um, and that's how he got out. 
Oh, I, I actually do remember. And that's when he killed the girls in Florida. Yes. And that's what you were just t- telling us about is the same jail. As- the same jail cell as Ronnie Walden, who was a Summers Point murder suspect as well. Um, so you had two of these guys were in this. That just to me was, was absolutely astonishing how that could be. It's almost like karma or kisma or something. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Something, something spiritual about that. Uh-huh. You know? I, I, the end of my book, the garden state park where he murders, I discuss, I remember I was trying to wrap it up in an afterward. And I remember there being these crows outside my window. And when I first began investigating this case, I was at the murder site and I remember distinctly the existence of these crows. And when I was ending things, and again, writing this afterward, these crows were there. And I looked it up and all sorts of spiritual significance to crows apparently they visit a person before they die mm-hmm. and right after they die they can portent good things and evil omens simultaneously so they definitely do have spiritual significance so next time one is out your window you want to uh-huh. sort of think as they put there for a reason yeah i think that's where the saying comes the crows have eyes right do they i don't know maybe they do uh-huh they live like they they live to be really old. I think that's why they say they carry all the secrets. Yeah, interesting. But I, <laughs> I just thought that fascinating. There's so many so many things. I mean, for example, ar- around every Memorial Day, I'll see a light blue, um, late 1960s Chevrolet convertible, which is the same one that Susan Davis was driving in the morning. These girls are murdered. And every time I'd see that, I'm like, is that? god or someone telling me to continue forth and i'm sure you you and your partner do as well you know these certain things get into and you're like well is that a sign to continue forth and try to find out who did this oh absolutely yeah Yeah. absolutely there you know our case you know carries um you know everybody there's a significance of a blue truck and so that's come to find out in this small town of dover there was you know it's a really small town but come to find out there were probably at least 15 blue trucks in 1980. So, so every time, you know, we were down in, in Dover a couple weeks ago and we were in town and we kept seeing blue trucks everywhere we went. So same thing. It's- and not only that, but the frustrating part, just as an aside, when you try to, well, they had a blue truck and back then the, the division of motor vehicles, there used to be the, the VIN number. Uh-huh. Uh, this started, I guess, in like 1975. I may be wrong, um, where they would put it on the engine, you know, and then so you could identify a certain car. So let's say your truck was sold to someone. Right. I mean, you could identify that truck, get it back to the owner, then interview the owner. Where were you on X date? Okay, you can do that now. You couldn't do that with trucks that were, that were manufactured before a certain date, which sort of exacerbates the whole the whole problem of identifying who might have owned that blue truck that was seen. Right. Yeah. Well, would you like to have any, would you like to say anything about your book, your most recent book that's been? Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, again, it's titled the garden state parkway murders. It's available on Amazon Kindle and print as well. It's also available at a wonderful independent bookstore on Asbury Avenue in ocean city, New Jersey. The name of the store is sun rose words and music owned by Roz Lifshin and Nancy Miller, two extraordinary people who really do support the local arts and, and 
you know, Indi authors and so forth. Um, I was recently on a podcast last night called the seven podcast. I'm hopefully going to be on yours soon. So, um, you know, there are a few articles out there as well. Um, I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, so just, just, just keep at it at Christian E. Barth. You can find me on Facebook through the usual channels. I don't have a site up yet, um, but that'll change in a week or so. Um, so that's really all there is to know uh, at this point. Well, thank you so much. You are going to be on our podcast soon. We'd love awesome. to you put this interview on. And thank you so much, Christian. We've learned a lot about serial killers. And um, we are hoping to really find justice for Carl and Vicky soon. And I'd love to tell you more about um, this case um, very soon. I'll, I'd love to call you back and tell you more about this case. And Absolutely. Anytime we can have a dialogue um, about this case and, and get in, delve into the specifics, the suspects to whom you're comfortable talking about, of course. And um, we can absolutely do that. No problem. I'd love to help. Perfect. Thanks, Christian. I really appreciate it. Have a Thank great you, day. Amelia. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye.